Good morning, Arcadia. This is Ira, and I'm bringing you the Word of God up here from North Mountain. The reading of the scripture is from the, the book of Matthew, chapter 6, verses 5 through 15. And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corner of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut the door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not use vain repetition as the heathens do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask him. In this manner, therefore, pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is the word of God. Hey, Redemption Arcadia, glad to be with you once again. If you're new to uh, this experience, we're glad you're here too. Also, uh, we would invite you to go to our website and email us for more information if you have questions or you want to know about how to get connected. My name is Frank Switzer. I'm the lead pastor at Redemption Church Arcadia, and I recognize that it is not quite yet May 1st, so um, fashion faux pas. I do have the short sleeves on, but it's going to be 100 degrees today, so I'm wearing the short sleeves. Also very excited on the day of us recording this video, it is also Grand Canyon University's graduation, and we have two graduates on our staff here, Reagan Capace and Caleb Wiseman, both are graduates now of Grand Canyon University, uh, the Antelope's Pride, so thank you very much, congratulations you guys, good to see you, all right. Uh, also, um, had a lot of reaction to last week's sermon, some of it actually positive. Uh, <laughs> anyway, I just want to mention, I just, I love our congregation, and in particular, Allison, for hearing my cry for, for uh, Mango Madness Kombucha. Thank you very much, Allison. I appreciate you uh, letting me have that. So I'll just set that right there for the rest of the video. Uh, at some point, we are going to get serious here, and maybe it'll be right now, maybe not. We'll see. Anyway, uh, this is our fifth week of six in the Lord's Prayer from Matthew chapter six. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Matthew six, and then uh, just know that we're going to end in Matthew 18. So that's, that's going to be easy to do for us today. I wanted to give you a couple of little updates. Uh, first of all, um, uh, starting on May 10th, after the Lord's Prayer, we are still not going to go into the Gospel of John, but rather the lead team has decided that we're going we're to do six weeks in Psalm 23. We're going to take a verse at a time. 
in Psalm 23. So that's what's going to come after the Lord's Prayer for six weeks. Uh, also, I just want you to know we still have no idea uh, when we'll be able to start gathering again on a limited basis. Understand it's going to be a phased gathering um, when we do start gathering again, it'll be limited. There will be some restrictions. We're going to be very serious about uh, distancing and san uh, sanitizing everything and cleaning everything up. But uh, when we do, we're looking forward to that. Um, and, and we're thinking that maybe within the next uh, six to eight weeks we can do that, but don't quote me on that. But when we do, it'll be in small groups, uh, and we're going to be taking lots of precautions we are working on a plan right now for that to happen. So we're, we're getting prepared. We are going to be prepared uh, for all of that. So in the Lord's Prayer, last week we talked about the verse that says, give us this day our daily bread. This week we are talking about the verse that says, forgive us our sins, debts, or trespasses. Whatever translation you happen to be using, all of those words apply and we'll look at those words. But Lord, we want you to forgive us our sins, our debts, our trespasses, as we also then forgive others. God has called us specifically as a forgiven people to also forgive others. Uh, I will tell you that in many ways, I really wish that Tom Schrader were here to teach this particular uh, part of the prayer because Tom uh, was a master forgiver. Uh, this idea, this theological truth that those who have been forgiven much also forgive much. Uh, Tom, by his own testimony, used to talk about how he was in that boat. He knew how much he had been forgiven by God. And therefore, he became a master forgiver, and he was a wonderful teacher about forgiveness. And if you'd like to hear some of his messages on forgiveness, you can go to uh, his, his, uh, his recordings are still available from his Priority Living ministry. If you go to Priority Living AZ, Org. You could find uh, those recordings there. So just a shout out to Tom. But Tom's not here. You're stuck with me. So we're going to be talking about forgiveness today. And I want to start with just a rhetorical question for you to ponder. This is a rhetorical question. Here it is. What good is our daily bread if we are not also forgiven by God? Now, it's a rhetorical question. Don't try to answer. Don't text me uh, an answer to that question because... Uh, in reality, right now, I am actually on the couch, curled up with Jackie, watching this sermon. So I'm watching myself preach to me, and Jackie is having the joy of myself giving running commentary on my sermon while I preach. It's really amazing what we can do with technology today. Jackie's so excited about all of this. Anyway, let's do a, a little bit of work on a couple of words in this verse, starting with that word that we translate variously as sin or debt or trespass. Uh, the Greek word means an offense or that which is owed to an other. And so that's good. It's sin. It could be translated as an offense. It's also a debt, that which is owed to others. Uh, but trespass also works as well. Although I wanted to know exactly what some translators are getting at when they use the English word trespass there instead of sin or debt or offense. And so I actually did a little word study on the English word uh, trespass. And so here's the etymology of the word trespass. It means to, uh, to pass across in violation of the law or to infringe on the rights of another. Now think about that. To pass across in violation to the law or to infringe on the rights of another. 
You and I have all done this to God. We have, uh, we have trespassed against the holy God. We've also done this to others. We have trespassed against other people. And others have done this to us. We've been trespassed against. So uh, this is a great translation. Whether you use sin or dead or trespassing, they all apply. And then I think it's also important to understand the word forgive. In the Greek, the word forgive that's translated as forgive means to be released or to be freed of obligation of guilt. And that's good. But here's what's really interesting and what I want to talk about for a little bit. Uh, the, the Greek word for forgive also means suffer. It means to suffer. Now, why? Why does it also mean to suffer? Well, here you go. When we forgive, we are releasing someone of all obligation and guilt of their offense against us. So in a sense, you and I suffer the loss when we forgive somebody. That's why forgiveness is hard. We first suffer the offense that was done against us, and then we endure and suffer any chance to exact payment from the other person for that offense. When we forgive, we give up the right to or the desire for justice, any chance to be made whole, which I will just say, I've done a lot of research and reading on this issue of of justice. Uh, Some people call it justice fulfillment, okay? Trying to obtain justice in order to satisfy some deep yearning uh, really hardly ever works very well. Uh, people, people really believe this notion of justice fulfillment. People really believe, um, you know, I'll just feel right if I can just get my justice. I will feel better. Well, if you know anything about procuring justice and you know anything about the research into this area, you know that it's a shaky proposition at best in terms of satisfying your quest to make you feel like things are all good again. Uh, The problem is, is that things can never go back to the way they were before the offense, as if nothing happened, which is really what we're trying to get, which is really what we're seeking. And it's not that justice is bad. It's good. And we should seek it in certain situations, especially as Christians, we should. But the idea that obtaining justice will satisfy us emotionally and fulfill us existentially has been proven over and over and over to be misguided and fruitless. Rarely have people who have exacted justice felt a sense of true satisfaction and fulfilled satisfaction after. They're always left with a sort of empty feeling. I have a couple of book recommendations. I'm going to stop here. I have a couple of book recommendations for you in this regard. Uh, The first one is one that I'm I'm guessing some of you have already read. Uh, You might want to read it again. The book is called Unbroken by Laura Hillenbrand. I highly recommend that you read that book, number one. It's called Unbroken. The other book I would recommend is actually an older book. It was originally written in 1985 by a guy named David Augsburger. It's considered a classic now. And the name of the book is The Freedom of Forgiveness. And it's not a very long book. It's about 140 pages. But that book is also very helpful. So this idea of justice fulfillment. I personally have never met a person who obtaining upon obtaining the, quote, justice they, they deserved was, when it was all said and done, fully emotionally satisfied and felt as though somehow now everything in the cosmos is rightly aligned. 
And again, I'm not saying that we should never pursue justice, but don't expect the procurement of justice to do for you what it cannot do. Uh, I've read a lot about what happens in death penalty cases and how aggressively some people will pursue the death penalty uh, as a form of justice for their loved one who has been killed. They'll go to every single hearing. They'll, they'll stay through the trial. They will write letters. They will advocate for the death penalty against the person who killed their loved one. They will work so hard at it. And, and their belief, their feeling is that somehow that will make them whole again. And the number of times that somebody actually succeeds in getting the death penalty, uh, sentenced to the person who killed their loved one, Afterwards, the number of times afterwards that people will say, you know what, I thought that would satisfy me, and I feel like still it's just not enough. There's still something missing. There's still something wrong. I'm not fulfilled uh, by that. Again, I'm not saying you shouldn't pursue that, but don't expect the procurement of justice to do for you in your heart what you really want it to do. It doesn't have that ability. Now, I know that was somewhat of a lengthy digression, but I think it was really needed. Uh, but to forgive, back to forgiveness, it means that we're going to eat the offense. That's what it means. It means that we suffer the cost and the consequence of that which was perpetrated against us. And I know, you hear that, I hear that, and here's our response. Well, that just doesn't seem fair. I don't like that. No wonder it's so hard to forgive. Exactly the point. Yes, now you've got it. Now we understand it's the cross, my brothers and sisters. It is the cross. For our sin committed against a holy God, Jesus suffered both the cost and the eternal consequence of our sin. He has forgiven us for that by suffering the cost and the consequence eternally for that. We are redeemed and reconciled. We didn't deserve it. It cost us nothing, and it was something that we could never do for ourselves. But it makes us whole. And in a way that humans really, truly cannot fully understand, it fully satisfies God's need for justice. It fully satisfies his need for justice. Jesus on the cross. The perfect, holy God willingly broke himself on the cross so that you and I, broken to our soul with sin, can be made whole and unbroken. There's one other problem with this whole justice scenario. Those who want justice often feel as though they've been oppressed by the person who has offended them, and, and very often, rightly so, yes. There, within injustice, there is often oppression as well. But then, here's the problem. When those people who have been oppressed are able to exact justice, often that just leads to them becoming the new oppressors. They use their newfound power to start oppressing others. And this has been a common narrative in history for not years, not decades, not centuries, but for millennia. It is rare for human, earthly, horizontal justice to come without further oppression as a result. So the question then can be asked also, is there such a thing as justice with no oppression? Yes, it's the cross, the cross. Jesus took the wrath to make us blameless and he took the justice to make us just. And now 
Our call as a forgiven people is not necessarily to go out and oppress others with our seeking justice, but rather to go out and love to love and forgive others. That's our call. And because this redemption for us and this forgiveness for us has been done supernaturally, miraculously, graciously, and mercifully, it is why it is a reasonable request by God to us, the beneficiaries of this forgiveness, that we also forgive others who have transgressed against us. That's our call. We are to forgive others. So last week, we talked about give us this day our daily bread. This is a request for genuine legitimate needs, provision and sustenance. This week, we look at this verse. Forgive us our sins, our trespasses, our debts, as we forgive those who have offended us. Well, this is a request for us to be in genuine, right relationships, our need for genuine and right relationships with God, certainly, but also with others. So what's the greatest commandment? Well, Jesus tells us. Greatest commandment is to love God and to love others. Well, in order to truly love others in a fallen world, there must be forgiveness. Can't be done without forgiveness. Now, this is really tough stuff, but it's true. If you are a spouse who refuses to forgive your spouse but claims the forgiveness of God, Jesus tells us that you have no biblical assurance of your salvation. We'll look at a passage that says that in a few minutes. If you are someone who refuses to forgive a parent or a child, you refuse to forgive a friend or a coach or a coworker or a neighbor, again, you refuse to do that while Claiming the forgiveness of God, you have no biblical assurance of your salvation. We'll look at that passage in just a minute. I will tell you that I struggled with this mightily right after I became a Christian 33 years ago. My father and I were not in a good place relationally, and I was harboring bitterness and resentment against him, and, and I thought it would be unjust for me to forgive him. I thought it would be wrong for me to forgive him. And it didn't matter how many verses came my way, I, I held on to that for quite some time. It's the old saying, I was drinking the, the poison of my bitterness and expecting it to have a negative effect on my father. That's what happens when we don't forgive. It took me four years of wrestling with the scriptures, wrestling with God, wrestling with the Holy Spirit before I finally came out and just and, and forgave him. And, and the release, I mean, the weight off of me when that happened it was just amazing. There's a reason why this is, this is true. Uh, James Oglethorpe, who was the founder of the colony of Georgia centuries ago, and a somewhat arrogant man, once said, he was a friend of the preacher John Wesley, he once said to the great preacher, I never forgive. And Wesley rep replied to Oglethorpe, then sir, I hope you never sin. You understand what's happening there. Now, here's something we have to wrestle with. And we don't have time to work through all of the implications here. It's very important. We, I wish we could. I'm hoping that when we do get into phase one or phase two of, of reopening the church on a limited basis during the week, we can have a Wednesday or Thursday night where we can discuss this more fully. But when it does come to forgiveness, I would use wisdom in knowing how much restoration in the relationship there should be. 
Forgiveness and restoration are two different things, and we need to understand that. And actually, we would be talking about not necessarily three levels, but three different aspects of this process. There's forgiveness, there's reconciliation, and there's restoration. And we need to, we need to use wisdom to navigate our way through all of those things. And here's a fourth little item for us to chew on. Uh, many of you have maybe heard this from somebody. Uh, they will say something like, well, you haven't truly forgiven me until you've forgotten what I have done to you. Uh, the problem with that, of course, is that this person doesn't understand how physiology works. It's impossible physiologically to forget something uh, unless the Holy Spirit takes it away from you or unless, of course, later in life you, you enter into some sort form of dementia. But to actually think, I need to forget this, is only going to cause you to remember it more. Forgiveness can come with remembering, and in fact, in many situations, it should come with remembering. We can forgive, but we also need to remember, maybe we shouldn't be putting ourselves in that situation ever again. That's why God has given us the gift of remembering as well. So that's maybe a, a longer discussion for a Wednesday or Thursday night, but I wanted to mention it there also. I've also found that there's this all-too-common notion. I've heard people say this, well, I'll forgive them just as soon as they forgive me. Well, you need to understand that that's not biblical, uh, that's not biblical forgiveness. That, that makes that forgiveness conditional. If you'll recall, in Scripture, we're told by Paul in the book of Romans, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. While we were sinning, not even aware of the fact that we needed Forgiveness. Christ went to the cross for us to forgive us of our sin. And Jesus did not go to the cross and announce as he hung on the cross, I'm only doing this for those who feel bad for what they are doing to me. He didn't say that. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing, but forgive them. And then look at this. This is fascinating to me. In Matthew chapter 6, after he teaches us the prayer... Verses 14 and 15, Jesus says this. This is not part of the prayer. This is commentary on the prayer that Jesus gives us. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. I think it's significant that in this entire prayer, all of the components of this prayer... There's one part that Jesus chooses to comment on right after he teaches the prayer, and it's this part about our unforgiving hearts, the struggle that we have with forgiveness. We need to be a people who forgive because we have been forgiven of way more than we could ever imagine. It's very important. Now, I'm pretty sure that by now, you will have a sense of where I am going with this upcoming question that I'm going to ask, but for the sake of of what I would say is good, biblical, gospel-centered proclamation, let's press deeper into this question. Here's the question. What is, in our world, in our universe, what is the moral reason or mandate for forgiveness? Uh, who or what provides us the authority, the reason, the mandate to forgive other people? I I've heard this so many times People often say, well, it's self-evidently true that we should forgive others. It's self-evidently true that we, for, we should forgive others. Well, really? Then why doesn't everybody just do it? It's self-evidently true. And we're all truth seekers, right? We all say that we're seeking the truth, and this is self-evidently true. Then why don't we just do it? 
Why is forgiveness still so hard? It's self-evidently true. Now, here you go. I, I really want you to hear this. So please put down your quarantine bagel and your lockdown coffee just for a second and really focus here, okay? The great Thomas Sowell called this, this phrase, self-evidently true, an argument without an argument. He writes this in his book, Intellectuals and Society, which, by the way, is also a great book, and he explains it this way. The statement, something is self-evidently true, simultaneously dismisses the need for evidence and yet is completely unprovable. It's an assertion, not an argument. You see, apart from the gospel, we are incapable of giving a moral or ethical cause to mandate or require forgiveness. We're incapable. Here, I'll, I'll give you some examples. Does science give us this mandate? Are we mandated by science to forgive others? If, if science is all there is and the explanation of all things, how do we extrapolate morality from science? That's a question that people have been asking for a long time and nobody's been able to answer Science is great. It tells us what something is and how it works. But where in science is the moral authority to tell us to forgive? Again, I hear all the time, the good thing about science is that it's impersonal, which makes it unbiased. Well, love and forgiveness is intensely personal. So there's a disconnect there. Here you go. How about evolution? Evolution, does that have a, a, a mandate for us morally to, to forgive others? I, again, I was watching a fascinating video. I would encourage you to look it up. It's about an hour and 25 minutes long, but it's really good. Uh, it was a conversation that Tim Keller and the uh, atheist moral psychologist, by his own definition, uh, Jonathan Haidt, were having at New York University in 2017. It's, it's a fascinating conversation. And they talked about the moral authority of evolution. And here was their statement about that. We came from apes, therefore, love and forgive others. It's a non sequitur. It doesn't work. Okay? How about ethnicity? Certainly, ethnicity gives us the moral mandate for forgiveness. I happen to be Irish. Does that alone give me some moral advantage or disadvantage in this idea of forgiveness? Well, certainly, if all three of those fail, certainly gender can do it. Gender. That's where we find the moral authority. Don't even get me started. See, none of these things or anything else. The moral authority comes from the grace of God and the sacrifice of God. Jesus is the model of forgiveness, and we are the followers, but with good reason. We have been forgiven, though we are totally unworthy of it. Therefore, the command for us to forgive is authoritative and legitimate. Our world is so currently focused on identity apart from Jesus, my ethnicity, my gender, my orientation, my education, whatever it is, that we have become impervious to the fact that the only rational foundation and explanation for love and forgiveness is Jesus on the cross. We need to understand that. So I want to wrap up by now going to that text that I mentioned before, and I know we've already had a text that said this, but this text that that says, look, if you're, if you're not forgiving others, if you're walking around, as James Oglethorpe does, with this moral and spiritual superiority that you never have to forgive anybody else, you have no biblical assurance of your salvation. Here's another passage, and it's Matthew chapter 18. 
And I need to set some context and go through a, a, a little bit before we get there. But, but this is a very important section of scripture that will help us to understand more about this idea of forgiveness. Um, Matthew uh, chapter 18 starts with the question, who is the greatest in, in the kingdom? And, and Jesus responds by talking about how the greatest in the kingdom are those who humble themselves. And, and it, it's good that the conversation eventually turns toward confession and forgiveness because in order to confess and in order to forgive, we're, we're going to have to humble ourselves. People who are filled with pride cannot confess sin and they cannot forgive. And, and so we have to understand where he's going with this and where this is coming from. We need to humble ourselves to forgive. It takes great humility to be able to forgive and to confess our sin. Now, let's start in verse 15. We have this first section that a lot of people say is like, this is where we get the protocols for church discipline. I wanna take you through this because it sets the stage for the parable that Jesus eventually tells. Starting in verse 15, Jesus says, if your brother or sister sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. In other words, you have to go. You feel somebody sinned against you, offended you, trespassed against you, has a debt. You need to go and you need to say, hey, this is what you did, and I'd like to talk about it. I'd like you to see it, and I also want to be, enter into forgiveness with you for it. Now, here's what's interesting. Let me just stop here and just explain this. This is what's interesting. A lot of people get all hyped up about church discipline uh, because what we know about church discipline in general is usually the people who refuse to confess, the people who staunchly refuse to acknowledge their sin, and eventually that becomes a problem that more and more people in the church are gonna know about. What's interesting about church discipline is 99% of church discipline issues end right here with verse 15. We just never get to hear about them. <clears throat> One person goes to another person and says, you've sinned against me, oh, okay, I confess that, I forgive you, and it's over. There's no need for a press release on that. And nobody really talks about it. So we need to understand that there's actually church, quote, church discipline going on all the time in the community. We just don't know about it, which is the way it should be, okay? But then it can go to a couple of other levels. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you. This is a reference back to Deuteronomy and the idea of, of witnesses, two or three witnesses, okay? That every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell, him to tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. So truly, when you get to this level, you're dealing with somebody who has no humility, not humble, uh, no self-awareness, uh, stubborn, stodgy, all of those things dug in, okay? We, we understand all that. That's why this chapter starts, I believe, with this idea of you got to be humble to both confess and to forgive. But then verses 18 through 20, interesting. Truly, Jesus says, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then verses 19 and 20, here you go. Take issue, a little bit of issue with these two. Again, I say to you, if two or three of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Verse 20, for where two or three are gathered in my name, here, there I am among them. Verses 19 and 20 are notorious for being taken way out of context. 
completely stripped of this context of, of, uh, confront, uh, of confronting, of confession, of sin, of humility, taken out of that context. So verse 19, um, it, it's like this. It's like people think, well, you know, if we outnumber God, then we can manipulate him. If the three of us agree to something here, then God has to go along with it. That's what this verse is saying. No, it's not. We can outvote God. God always has the deciding vote. We need to understand that. Now, I I know to some of you that sounds crazy that people would actually try to use that verse to justify that kind of thinking, but it happens all the time. I've even heard it taught this way in Bible studies. Whatever we agree on, God must go along with. No, no. There's context here. The context is verses 15 through 17. It is the context of a faith community leadership in the latter stages of the confession forgiveness process. That one-tenth of a percent that doesn't get resolved. And the goal of the leadership, the elders, the priests, the pastors, the judges, the kings, whatever the context is, the goal is the push for confession, forgiveness, reconciliation, unity, and humility. See, the problem, again, it goes back to this. The heart wants what the heart wants. And so people will use this verse quite often in order to justify their own desires, behavior, principles, and doctrinal positions that are unbiblical. The context for this verse, verse 19, is faithful people praying for wisdom and humility in situations of confession, forgiveness, reconciliation, and unity. And then there's verse 20. I hear this where two or three are gathered. There's Jesus. So when I'm alone and I'm praying, no Jesus. See, this is why I'm always asking people to pray with me because I want to make sure Jesus is there. Look, I, I don't mean to be curt or harsh. I'm, I'm not curt. I'm frank. I don't mean to be harsh, but how silly is this? How silly is this? If God is sovereign, God is omniscient, God is omnipresent, but for some reason he's not around when I'm alone and praying, it makes absolutely no sense. But I've heard this, interp- this verse interpreted this way. Again, people, context, context. The two or three is actually a reference, as I said earlier, back to Deuteronomy 19, where in contested trials, you needed two or three witnesses in order to adjudicate a situation properly. And in Jesus's context, the people who heard this teaching would have immediately thought about Deuteronomy 19, because they understand the context. When we read the Bible, we need to be thinking constantly about their context and not just our context. So now, the parable. The parable on forgiveness is a a mighty parable. Then Peter came up to Jesus and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I will forgive him? As many as seven times? Now, little note there. This is fascinating to me. The rabbis taught in the first century, and probably other times too, but I know in the first century, the rabbis would teach that the righteous person of God will forgive up to three times when somebody sins against them. So here's Peter coming up to Jesus in front of everybody else, sort of grandstanding, and saying to Jesus, in a sense, the subtext is, Jesus, look how spiritual and righteous I am. I'm going to forgive up to seven times. I'm going to forgive 
two and a third times more than other rabbis are teaching. I'm going to forgive seven times. And what does Jesus say to that? Jesus says, no, I do not say seven times, but 77 times or seven times 70 times, depending on your translation. Here's what it means. It doesn't mean seven times 70. It doesn't mean 77 times. It means you are to always forgive the person who confesses their sin. There is no limitation on it. So he's taking Peter's generous offer and saying, still not enough. And you need to understand, Peter, how much I'm forgiving you by going to the cross. You still don't get it. I understand that. I haven't gone to the cross yet. But when I go to the cross and you see me raised from the dead, then you're going to get it. And Peter does get it. Becomes one of the great proclaimers of the gospel. But right now, he's still struggling, you know, impetuous Peter. And that leads us into the parable. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. 10,000 talents, I've gone and done the math, it's like $50 billion and all that. The point isn't the amount. The point is it's an astronomical amount that could never be paid back. That's the point. It's a debt that could never be paid back by the debtor. You see where this is going. So 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children so that all he had and payment could be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him. He's asking for mercy. He's asking for grace. Have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for his servant, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out and he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii, 500 bucks, okay? No comparison. We're not even supposed to be making a a comparison because there is no comparison of these debts. It's a debt that could be easily paid back and easily forgiven, okay? Who owed him 100 denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, and he said, pay what you owe, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Uh, Probably not going to earn enough in prison to be able to pay back the debt. So there is some irony there. But look what happens in the wake of this story. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. The same master who had forgiven this other servant of the $50 billion debt. Then his master summoned this servant And said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is yes. And in anger, the master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay his debt. So also, Jesus says, my heavenly father will do every." Do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart. There's that parable. There's that that story that Jesus says that, listen, if you're claiming the forgiveness from God, you're taking the forgiveness of your sin for God, but you don't have a heart that can forgive other people. You're in trouble. And maybe you don't even realize it, but you're in trouble. Again, this idea of $50 billion versus $500, it's not the exact amounts. It's rather the hyperbolic comparison that Jesus wants us to understand that there is actually no comparison. Whatever has happened to us, God has forgiven us, us exponentially more. No matter what has happened to us, 
God has forgiven us exponentially more. And so if you're not feeling the forgiveness vibe, you need to get over yourself. I need to get over myself. I call this parable the get over yourself parable. That's what Jesus is telling us. You know, if you're, if you're that person, like James Oglethorpe, who's walking around thinking you're morally and, superior to others, morally and spiritually superior to others to such an extent that you don't have to engage in this forgiveness process, you're in real trouble. And you need, to, you need to work through that. You need to pray that God would open your eyes and open your heart to this understanding of forgiveness. But when we understand how much massively more we are forgiven by God for our sin, we get to rejoice and we get to live in gratitude and we get to live in freedom, the freedom of forgiveness. We get to live uh, free of, of that which is binding us on this earth, the bitterness, the resentment. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing that, that God has done for us through his son, Jesus Christ. So let me pray, and uh, hopefully we'll be able to start moving uh, sometime quickly to uh, being able to get back together. Again, we miss you guys. The staff miss you very much. We're praying for you all the time. Uh, let me pray for you now as we close out. Lord God, again, thank you for your word and its truth. We thank you for all that you have done for us through your son, Christ, on the cross, and through the resurrection to new life. The tomb is empty, and we should celebrate. Uh, nobody is venerating uh, the burial place of Jesus. Rather, we are celebrating that he is with us alive even now, and that he is ruling the universe. God, we celebrate that. We want to be a part of that. We need your, de your forgiveness desperately, and therefore, we also need to be people who forgive desperately. We should forgive desperately. So God, help us to do that. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me give you my favorite benediction from Numbers. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and to be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace now and forevermore. God bless you all. Go and live all of life all for Jesus. And we will, quote, see you next Sunday. <laughs>